0: Welcome to Beauty Uncut the Podcast. I'm Shania. I'm Kayla.
1: And I'm Ian. And we're here to bring a new perspective to beauty. So today's podcast, what is today's podcast about, Ian? About?
2: So today we're going to be talking about (laughs) breasts.
1: But before we get started, I wanted to say, do you guys remember at the end of season one, I was about to become homeless? At the start of season two, I became homeless, end of season two, still homeless, oh, going gosh. on three months now. <laughs> well, I just want to update everyone. I'm not home. Well, I still am homeless, but I'm about to not be homeless <laughs> in four weeks. So I found a house. I'm so excited for you. I'm uh, excited. I feel like my life is going to change. Yeah.
2: I think so. It's been a good, what? Three months. Three months I that can't you've believe been homeless. That.
1: Hasn't that gone so quick? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, so happy days, <laughs> happy dances all around because I'm going to have a house and a rooftop pool and be close it to It looks work. really nice.
2: I like that the audience kind of missed out on all of the real drama of being homeless. <laughs> oh yeah. And they just saw the little, you yeah. know, it's
1: like. They're like, oh, she's handling it well. <laughs> little did you know, I was jumping from couch to couch. I was living out of a suitcase, living out of a car. So
0: yeah, it did well. I you did- were like Jewel. Who's Jewel?
2: Jules a singer. Oh. Then she was homeless before she became famous. So oh. I feel like your story is potentially paralleling right. Jules' story.
1: But do you know what? You said this to me that I'm handling it exceptionally well.
2: I think you are. You are? I think you are. I mean, there's only been a couple breakdowns.
1: Has that? <laughs> a couple. Has <How's> that? <laughs> Don't trigger me. I'm about to start playing again. <laughs> Anyway, so let's jump straight into today's topic, which is all about the boob. So tell us all about them.
2: So (laughs) you guys probably have more experience with breasts than I do.
1: I actually don't know if you do. So neither (laughs) of us have... Oh, oh, you do. I don't really have boobs. (laughs) So I I can't... I don't have experience.
2: Okay. So I'm, as you know, predominantly a breast surgeon, doing a lot of work with implants, with lifts. So I think the first thing to think about is... What can be done? So people think about breast augmentation and I think they think back to the 80s when everyone had the really big fake Boltons. Boobs. Yeah, and that's still the thought. People come into the office for a consult and they say, I don't want the bolt-on look as if that's the standard.
1: Mm. That's the only boobs look you can day. get. Yeah, you can fix yeah. or nothing.
2: <laughs> exactly. And I think we've really, as surgeons and as patients, everyone's moved on from that look to a certain degree. I mean, you still do have people that want that. But I think that's the first thing is knowing what can be done, what sort of looks can be achieved, and how. And so when you think about implants, at the moment in this country, we have silicon gel implants as the predominant type. In the U.S., they're using a lot of saline because there was a ban, a silicon ban from the mid-'90s where uh, they thought it was unsafe to use. And so all the implants were saline-filled. And so a lot of the surgeons who, especially if they've been trained in America, are very familiar with that. Whereas here in Australia, it's predominantly silicon gel and it's what you call cohesive gel. So you may have heard the term gummy bear or Turkish delight.
1: Turkish delight. <laughs> I've never heard of that, but yes.
2: Yeah. So, so most people say gummy bear, but Turkish delight. You know, same mm. consistency. Whereas if you cut that implant in half, it's not going to run everywhere mm. like the liquid silicon used to. That was like a honey or a molasses consistency.
1: And I think that's something that's super important to note because obviously working with you and under your clinic, when we answer calls and girls call up who've had their boobs done a long time ago by different surgeons or whatever, they're like, "Oh my god, I've got a rupture and it's like leaking out everywhere." And I'm like, "No, it's not leaking." It- it's mm. probably not leaking out everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And
2: I think the, that's the thought that goes through people's mind is that if there is a rupture or if they're going to rupture, then the silicon just goes into your entire yeah. system. And it has happened like with the old implants, with that liquid silicon, it could get out and get into your lymph nodes. And then it was a big mess because you had to remove mm. the lymph nodes as well that contain the silicon. Oh. You didn't necessarily have to, but you wanted to get all of that out yeah. or as much out as possible. possible. Yeah,
0: for sure. Is it still illegal in America
2: to use? No, no, no. So, so now the silicon gel implants have been accepted. So mm-hmm. you've got a bit more of a split, yeah. I suppose, with, with what's being used.
1: Wait, so we only use saline, right? Sorry.
2: <laughs> no, we use mainly silicon.
1: Okay, not saline. But you yeah. can
2: get saline here as well. And some of the surgeons that I know that use them, either they've trained in America, that's their background, or you know for whatever reason that's what they choose but i would say the market share is held by silicon implants here
0: and why do you not use the other type the what's it called saline the saline, saline. Yeah. yeah
2: so i predominantly like silicon because that's what i was trained on and i think it's just a lot easier to control there's fewer variables i guess yeah. with the silicon ones
1: before we jump into the topic of breast augmentations breast lifts etc let's know a little bit about you as a surgeon how many boob jobs a year do you roughly do
2: So it it varies from year to year. Uh, Probably the the biggest year I'd done just under 500, and that was in 2021. So I would say I'm averaging somewhere usually in in the 400s per year.
1: Yeah. That's a lot of boobies. That's a lot of (laughs) boobies. (laughs) And what would be your favorite breast procedure to do?
2: So I guess I can look at that two ways because a straightforward breast augmentation from a technical standpoint It's the least surprising thing that I have to do, and so I do like to do them. From a challenging perspective, I like to do single-stage augmentation mastopexies. So that's uh, what we call a BAM masto in clinic. It's where you get your implants and have a lift done at the same time. And I think as far as surgery goes, I do a lot more of them than some of my colleagues. That's just become something that I do.
1: Why is that? Do people opt to do the two stage as opposed to the one stage usually?
2: Well, sometimes you have to have a two stage or it's highly recommended to have a two stage in terms of healing and for the result. Generally, when I'm talking to patients in the room, I say you're suitable for either one, but there's pros and cons. So with a single stage, you know, the pro is that you've got one surgery planned Although when you do it single stage, the revision rate's quite high. So worldwide figures generally accepted one in five that you're going to have some kind of revision, whether it's to adjust the implant level, whether it's to take out a bit more skin. Uh, The con of doing a single stage is that you can only go up to a certain size because with a lift, you're actually reducing the skin envelope. And with implants, you're trying to expand the skin envelope. So you're sort of working Mm at cross purposes with that particular surgery. So you've got to find the balance. With a two-stage, it is easier to do from a healing point of view, because you do the lift first. You've got no tension on that scar. It's going to heal better. And then when you go back in, you can put a larger implant in than you would with a single stage. Although personally, and this is just the way I work, artistically, I think it's easier to get a more aesthetic result from a single stage, doing it all at once.
0: And why have you focused on breast surgery in comparison just to doing every other kind of body surgery?
2: It's funny because I came into the industry wanting to do facial surgery originally. Like facelifts? Yeah, facelifts. Wow, that
0: shocks me
1: because I can't see anything else, like doing anything else than a breast surgery because you're so good at it. And I feel like you've obviously marketed yourself well as a breast surgeon.
2: Yeah, well, before I even did any cosmetic work, I was working in in the plastic and reconstructive surgery department doing a lot of craniofacial. And I thought that's what I was interested in, you know, the facelifts, all of that. But when I started working privately, it was a lot of breast patients that came through mainly. And so then I started to see that it was actually a lot more technical than people think. You know, people mm-hmm. think you make an incision, you just put an implant in. And I think I, I get that idea from patients, even when they say, why do you have to do so many measurements? You know, what do you measuring? Don't you just put them in? And I said no, "No." it's, yeah, there's actually a lot going on Mm. internally that affects the external. And I think from my point of view, I've always said I do this surgery because I love the art of it. Mm. And so that helps. I mean, with breast implants and breast augmentation, I think there's a lot of art that you don't see internally. And I like that technical aspect to it.
1: What do you dislike most about your job or about doing breast surgery? Well,
2: I think the main difficulty, and it's not just my difficulty, but it's like for patients as well, it's the expectation and it's matching what their anatomy allows me to mm. do to get a result. So all of those things have to funnel in together to, to come out the other side with a result. And I think sometimes, even if I'm talking about a certain result and a patients thinking a certain result, they don't quite align. And I think that's the hard hardest part of this particular surgery because sometimes too people can't or won't accept their anatomical limitation.
1: Perfect. Well, should we jump into breast basics? Let's do
2: it. It's a huge topic. So how do we break it down into something that's easy for people to understand and digest and take away? I'm going to approach it like I do in my consultations when I'm talking about surgical planning. So the very first thing I want to talk about is the incision because that's the thing that people see and that's the thing that people are concerned about is the scar. How am I going to scar? What's it going to look like?
1: And I feel like as well, I think in Australia, it's not as common, but getting it through the underarm. Yeah. I know that we have a lot of inquiries about that, yeah. but we predominantly do through the breast crease. So do you want to tell us the different incisions and why?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the one that I use for, if we're just talking about straightforward augmentation, I go in through the inframammary fold or the breast crease. Personally, I find that it's the way in where I can have the most access to the pocket. I can see everything that I need to, and I can design the pocket internally the way that I want to. Whereas if you go through the armpit or the axilla, that's very popular overseas. So we see a lot of people coming from Asia, from Thailand who have had their breasts done before, and they go in through that way. Personally, I've never been trained that way. What I see, though, coming from those patients is that the placement is way too lateral. Yes. So I think a lot of patients nowadays, they're all asking for that close cleavage. And the only way that I can get it is going in through the inframemory fold. The other way you can go in is through the nipple or mm. so what we call periareolar incision. And I just find that with the larger implants nowadays, it's just too Imagine hard. Imagine trying it's just too hard to get 300cc
1: <laughs> through oh your God. nipple. Jesus Christ. But also, then you run the risk of, you have to obviously cut the nipple out and then reattach. So, it. No, you, so you don't have oh. to cut
2: the whole nipple. So, you're making a semicircular.
1: How? Are just you at you the lower. Just the lower. Through <laughs> nipple. What the hell?
2: Exactly. And I think when all of these incisions were invented, so to speak, or when they were started to be used, the implants were a lot smaller than they are now. Or I'm talking half the size maybe even less. So, Mm. you know, the average implant back then would have been in the 200 cc. I'm still trying
1: to think about a 200 cc fitting through a nipple. Like my nipples are quite small, so I'm not sure if like that's, I'm like touching myself, sorry. (laughs) But the
2: other thing is that, you know, with the saline implants that we talked about, they go in uninflated. So you're basically putting in a bag, an empty bag, which is rolled up and then you inflating it with saline to blow it up and so in wow. that sense, that makes sense then. yeah yes. so, so certainly the the auxiliary incision the areolar incision those make sense then
1: how much like how do you know how much to pump in and how do you close it
2: So you have to measure. So you actually are filling up a syringe and you're saying, all right, I'm going to put in 50 cc's at a time. Yeah. And you've got to count. You've got to get Mm. your scrub nurse to count. You've got to get your scout nurse to keep track as well. Mm. So you really have to monitor how much is going in because it's very easy to that. seems like a lot of double
0: handling to me.
1: (laughs) The thing I hate (laughs) most.
2: But when you, once you've got in the volume that you want, you just pull this little, the port, the inflatable port and it seals itself.
0: Right. So you
2: don't actually have to seal that on the implant.
0: Interesting. Oh, wow, I did not know that. Mm. Me either. That, see, you teach
1: us something every <laughs> day, Ian, seriously.
2: But the other thing with the incisions, so you've got to think about what you're going through to get to that breast pocket. And so with a, an inframammary fold or IMF incision that I do, I'm getting through the fat down to the muscle straight away, and there I'm in. I'm into the pocket, whether I want to go on top of the muscle or under the muscle. Mm. If you're going through the axilla, you've got a long way to go to get to where you wanna go. Right. And with the going through the areola, you're going through breast tissue. So that introduces a whole new set of issues. You're talking about disruption of the milk ducts. You're talking about release of bacteria into the pocket. So there's a lot more risk with going through those ways.
1: And then another thing is as well, if your incision is in your underarm, does that mean you're at a risk of infection? Because obviously you sweat more mm-hmm. there. Yep. Your armpits are kind of always closed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, So, I mean, it's infection from the armpit. It's, you know, because there's so many hair follicles there, you can get folliculitis and that can lead to issues with the implant. So yeah, there's a lot of things to think about with the incision. And that's why I choose the IMF.
0: Makes total sense. If someone wants a lift, because we've just spoken Mm. about the one that goes underneath, what would you do in that case?
2: So with a lift, you're actually adding the you're sort of expanding the number of incisions you can have and you've got terms like anchor so the anchor scar is the one that i use for lifts now pretty much exclusively so that's where you have a scar around your areola down it's a vertical line and then horizontal in the crease that's the anchor because it's shaped like an anchor essentially
1: and then that's what people are most afraid about because of the scarring it's obviously like a bigger scar mm. But not to talk you up or anything, but seeing your work, you are so good. And I feel like a lot of doctors comment on how good you are when you cut or suture or whatever. And then there's also so many treatments that you can do afterwards that will help minimize the scarring. So I think people need to be not as scared as that. Yeah, exactly. Like scared of it. sorry. Exactly.
2: I think when you do have a surgical scar, it's about the closure. It's about how many layers you do. And then it's about the dressing. And then it's about how you look after the scar from that point onward.
1: Absolutely. And also I guess hereditary, like if you're Mm. prone to scarring and things like that as well,
2: like keloids, you know, that sort of
1: thing. Yeah, for sure. And what about the other lifts like Benelli's? is, that what they're called? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so the Benelli lift is where you end up with a scar just around the areola and that's okay for very small lifts or I would just call them nipple lifts. If you need to reposition the nipple, that's a possibility, but they're uh, very prone to stretching. So Mm. even if you do lots of reinforcement deep down, because you've got an implant involved as well, it's always going to be putting tension on that scar. The positive thing about the anchor and the lollipop, which is related to the anchor, is that you do have that vertical component. And so the tension spread, not just around the areola, but it's spread down that vertical line as well. So you're not going to get that direct stretch so much
1: what's a lollipop? I obviously know it's that and then that, but why don't you get the anchor underneath? Is that for people who aren't having implants or?
2: No, you can still do the lollipop lift with implants and you actually go in through that incision. Yeah. My problem with it is that the lollipop vertical limb always ends up getting extended. So what I want is for that distance to be shortened. And that's the only way you're going to get the very firm IMF crease and the lift, because right. if you just do the lollipop, oftentimes you end up very bottom yeah. heavy.
0: Yeah. Is there a reason why you would go over the muscle and under the muscle?
2: Yep. So again, there's pros and cons there. And I think in the past people were doing it more in front of the muscle because they didn't want to interfere with that structure. And so if you think about the pros, number one is that you don't cut the muscle. Number two, if you're looking for close cleavage, it's easier to get because you don't have to deal with the muscular attachment Mm. to the sternum. And that's one of the things that I tell my patients all the time when they want that really close cleavage is that the limiting factor for them is where that muscle joins. I can only thin that muscle out so much to get them close. If I thin too much, that's when you end up with simastia or uniboob, which is you know something that a lot of people are afraid of also. Now, going under the muscle also provides an added benefit of a lower risk of capsular contracture because you're less likely to get into the milk ducts. And again, it's with that bacterial release, getting into the breast tissue there.
0: What's capsular contracture?
1: <laughs> Before we jump into capsular contracture, because I feel like that's a whole other topic. Mm, yeah. But dual plane is what yeah. most surgeons do. And I think a lot of patients get confused about under, over, well, yeah, under, over and dual plane. Most people refer under as dual plane, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: so this is the thing. Dual plane is like the hot term. Everyone wants it. No one knows what it means. Yes. <laughs> and so I say to them, the best way to explain it is your implant sits on your chest, on your rib cage the top half of the implant is covered by your pec muscle and the bottom half of the implant is covered by the breast tissue. So there's no muscle in the lower part. And that's why a lot of times you can actually feel the implant edge if you've got very thin tissues. And outside, so the lateral part of your breast, you can sometimes see rippling if you're very thin, or you can feel the edge there as well, because those are the areas that aren't covered by the muscle. Mm -hmm. Now, why would you choose dual plane over a complete submuscular? And that's just because you're following the anatomy. In order to get the bottom half of that implant covered with muscle, you either have to not detach it, and if you don't do that, it's gonna sit funny, it's gonna sit way too high, or you have to lift up intercostal muscle from the ribs to cover the bottom. And there's really just no reason to do that.
1: And I noticed that you don't do a lot of above the muscle. Why is that? Is that because you don't get as natural of a result? Is there risk associated with it?
2: It's definitely more about the aesthetic for me predominantly. So that's where you get that bolt on look because Mm. again, you don't have the muscle covering the top. You can really see the line the top line of the implant and patients say, I don't want to see that line. I don't want them to look like they're stuck on. And if you're a lean person, that's what they're going to look like. The other thing, as I mentioned before, with capsular contracture, it's more likely when you're going in front of the muscle. And so I want to avoid that. The third thing is just because of gravity. If it's in front of the muscle, there's really nothing there to help support Mm. that implant even if you put an internal bra in there and we'll get to that, I'm sure later on in this (laughs) podcast, but if you put an internal bra to take that weight, your breast tissue is still the only thing holding it in. And because it changes so much with pregnancy, with weight loss, with weight gain, the weight of the implants is just going to pull it down over time. So, um, so that's, yeah.
1: I know this isn't a part of breast basics and feel free to like touch on it on a different topic if it's too long, but people who gain weight, lose weight, As we age, obviously, skin laxity and things like that. Why does that affect our implants? Well, not ours, because I don't have any, but (laughs) theirs, you know.
2: So oftentimes it doesn't affect the implant at all, but it affects the overall look because you have to think of the implant and the breast as they're obviously two different structures. And my job is to make sure that they interface correctly to present as one structure. So usually when there's weight loss, there's weight gain, that reveals that they are two different things. And you often have the implant sitting nicely staying, you know, where it's supposed to be and the natural breast when it becomes lax starts to hang off of it. And so you get what's called waterfall breast or Snoopy breast. And you obviously, it's obvious why they have those names. Do you know who Snoopy is?
0: Is that the
1: dog?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a dog.
1: (laughs) Is that a black and white dog?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that his nose looks like like the, it's it's like a
1: nose dive.
2: Exactly. Yes. Exactly.
1: Makes sense. And then I feel like the biggest question that everyone comes in is size. Like they want to, well, we said we think, you know, natural boobs are going to be the thing of 2023, like more mini boob jobs, but we obviously always see the bigger boob jobs. How does size get determined?
2: So the easiest way to think about size is if you think about it, I'm always going back to these sort of house construction and real (laughs) estate analogies. But if you think about, you've got a block of land, you can't build your house Outside of that Why not? block. Well, maybe you can. <laughs> but about your
1: eyelids a little bit. <laughs> I'm you. I'm,
2: it's I'm never sure worked, it it's never worked for me. But that's your, your dude. So, so your rib cage, right? There's only a certain amount of platform that we can rest right. the implant on. And so we can't choose something that's wider than what you have. And that's the basic. You know, when you get into the more advanced reasoning for sizing, it's like your skin amount of skin that you have, how big your areola is to your breast. So that ratio comes into it as well, especially when we're doing a lift. The distance from your nipple down to your crease, that's a big one as well, because sometimes you have what's called inferior pole constriction or even tuberous breast where that's a very short distance. And so the goal is in designing an aesthetically pleasing breast is we have to expand that distance. We can't just put any implant we want in because then the nipple position is not going to be right.
1: There's just a lot that goes into it. Hey, I'm learning so much me, right me now. Too. I'm, I'm like, actually like, wow,
2: <laughs> we're not even scratching the surface. I like,
1: There's so much that you could probably talk about, yeah. but I feel like that's a lot. Yeah, it's already
2: um, a lot. We're, we're actually <laughs> still in the incision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another Gosh.
1: one anatomical. Oh, how we finished with that one?
2: Yeah. So so let's go down the framework. So I've got four things. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the incision, we've sort of covered most of the basics of that. The next thing that I talk about is the pocket, and I guess we covered that as well with yeah. dual plane versus submuscular versus in front of the muscle. And then the third category is the shape. So in broad terms, round implants, anatomical implants, or teardrop implants. So but then people there's have to.: understand-
1: also round that act like teardrop. I know that's not a type.: Yeah, yeah.
0: I
2: guess it's what I call a hybrid implant. And I think you have to think about the reasoning for the shape, whether it's for aesthetic you know, whether you want a more natural look or whether it's, I guess, functional in a sense. Like a requirement? Yeah, so so sometimes, you know, I mentioned you can have that short distance between your nipple and your crease, and I want to expand that. That's not going to happen with a round implant because the point of most projection of that implant is going to be above the nipple. Mm. And so I want that projection at the level of the nipple or lower in order to stretch out the bottom part of the breast. And that's the reasoning for that. It's very hard to... imagine i guess unless you're seeing it happen or you're seeing the anatomy but but that's why i would choose one over the other or i would say to a patient you need to have this one now if this is your first breast surgery once we've achieved that stretch with your first set of implants if you want to replace later most likely we can go to round
1: and i think that's another thing as well is when it's their first surgery you can't jump going back to size Mm. you can't jump to like a 600 800 Mm. cc Mm. like If you're especially like don't have much breast tissue, you have to start small and then potentially come back in one to two years and go bigger.
2: Exactly. That's right. You've got to limit yourself based on the anatomy to get to a certain point. Once you've had your first set of implants, it's quite easy to, because everything's been stretched, all the tissues relaxed, you can go quite large the second time or the third time around. But I think what's hard for a lot of people is just thinking that first time that they can't get to their final goal because it's going to take it's (laughs) going to take a few steps
0: yeah so how about profiles can you tell us a little bit about the different types
2: yeah so i think profile and shape really go hand in hand and just in broad terms you have moderate a moderate plus high and ultra high or extra high profile so each implant company has different terms for those profiles but those are the categories and again why would you choose certain profiles I generally, when I'm doing sizing, I choose a volume first. And for me, the volume determines the profile Mm -hmm. based on the patient's measurements. So if someone comes to me and says, I want a high profile, 400 CC, because someone else had that, it might not suit them at all. So Mm -hmm. I first get them to try on the sizers and work out what's for them. And oftentimes they're surprised that the size they've chosen is not the one they thought they were going to. And then from there I say, all right, well, this is gonna work in a high profile because of your chest width measurement. Or if they choose a very low implant, low volume, I'm going to have to choose a moderate profile because they're wider in the base. And the priority for me is filling the width before the projection. So I think I'll just rewind because with profile, you have to think about the width of the implant versus the projection. That's all profile is that ratio.
1: Is that all the basics? No. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm like trying to remember. Like all no.
2: so right. Oh, yeah. Is that enough on profiles? Do you Yeah, think? I
1: feel like we. it's hard with yeah. profiles because I feel like you have a YouTube video where you explain mm. it so well. And I think unless you see it visually, see it, yeah. it's mm. hard to know. So I feel like that's great. And, you know, if people want to know more, come in for a consult.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think with profile too, that's something that we can just continually talk about. And yeah. it's going to take quite a few times before, I think, Lots of people understand what that's all about
1: because you know you need to hear things eight times. <laughs> the
2: magic number,
1: are you sick of me saying that?
2: No, I've heard it probably nine times now. Though, so. <laughs> so now you know, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. So, yeah, the last thing I suppose in terms of breast basics would be the implant shell, and this is where there's a lot of controversy mm. because things are changing all the time with what's available and with current research. So to break it down very simply, at the moment, in Australia, <laughs> you have textured shells, which are limited to what's called micro-textured. In the past, we had macro-textured and polyurethane. So those are getting even rougher in the surface.
1: And that makes them adhere to your breast tissue?
2: Yes. So the rougher the implant surface, the more adherence yeah. you're likely to get with your own tissue. So for instance, if you didn't want them to move, you're going to go with a rougher surface. Right.
1: Why can't you have them in Australia? Is it because of the risks with cancer? Yes.
2: So so recently, and I suppose within the last four or five years, it was decided that the rougher surfaces, the macrotextured and up, so that includes polyurethane, were at a higher risk for ALCL or breast implant associated ALCL. ALCL stands for anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is a very rare cancer, but it's not a breast cancer per se. It's a cancer of the capsule around Mm. the implant.
1: Once you remove that capsule, does that mean you remove the cancer?
2: Yeah. So once the capsule's removed, the cancer's gone, unless it's spread like any other cancer. So uh, if you catch it early, which most of the time when people have that, it is caught early because it presents with a swelling. And so you're going to notice that swelling and investigate it. You're not just Mm. going to let it go on and on.
1: And the likelihood of someone getting this, what's the statistics? I think I heard you're more likely to get hit by a bus than get Cancer.
2: It depends on where you live. (laughs) But yeah, so what do you mean?
1: Depends where you live. Where like where are you going to get hit by a bus? That's more common.
2: Southport.
1: (laughs) Oceania. I'm sorry, you're about to be hit by a bus. Probably.
2: I was thinking like India or uh, something. You know.
1: (laughs) Same time. India, Southport. You know. Are there buses in Southport? Yes. Sorry.
2: But but no. What what was the question? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> the likelihood of actually statistics. Yeah, yeah. statistics.
2: yeah. So so now what's reported or what we have available in this country with the microtextured implants, the risk of developing that cancer is somewhere between one in 30,000 and one in 40,000. So those are very low numbers. Just to put it in perspective, your risk of getting traditional breast cancer, as you know it, is one in eight. Right. So if you think about the mm. numbers that way... Then, uh, then you can see that it's not a very common thing, even though there's been a lot of a fear around them, I suppose, from the media.
1: Yes, the media love to scare us, don't <laughs> they? <laughs> they do. Yes. They do. And then smooth implants. So you don't do a lot of smooth implants, I believe.
2: No, no, I don't. So smooth implants were the first shell available. And everyone knows what a smooth implant looks like. When you, I think when people think about breast implants, that's what they think of, yeah. is that very clear, smooth <laughs> shell. I don't use a lot of them mainly because of the displacement risk. So my patients, they want the close cleavage. They want the implants not to move anywhere. And so with a smooth implant, you're more likely, especially with muscular contraction, you're more likely to get that movement. And so a lot of my patients demographic are fit. They're athletes. So they're very active in the gym. And no, that's going
0: <laughs> to... can't relate.
2: <laughs> and so that's going to contribute to implant displacement.
0: Right. To finish off the episode, we just have three frequently asked questions. The first one I have is going back to what we were speaking about before. What is that capsular contracture? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So
2: capsular contracture is probably the most important risk of breast implant surgery because you can get it literally at any time. And that's where the capsule around the implant, which is healthy scar tissue, gets thickened or hard and starts to squeeze on the implant. So there's various levels of this. And in a mild case, you're just gonna get a breast that feels firmer than the other one. Visually, nothing changes. So when you look in the mirror, you can't tell, but you could, if you were to squeeze them, you can feel that one's harder. And so in those cases, you know, that's what we call a grade one capsular contracture. We wouldn't do anything. We just leave them alone and watch it. If it progresses, that's when you're gonna start to get that visible distortion and change in shape of the breast. You can get some pain as well and it can even lead to implant rupture in some cases. So, getting capsular contracture is related to a few different things, mainly smoking. So that's number 1. That's well, the number one thing. you
1: shouldn't be doing it anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's the number one thing I say to patients is this is the thing you can control with regards to capsular contracture, so don't smoke. Number 2 would be bleeding. So, if there's a big bleed or a hematoma into the implant space, and that's just left alone, that's mm. gonna cause a lot more inflammation. That's gonna result in probably a more likelihood of getting capsular contracture. And then there's infection. So the same thing as the bleeding, you know, you're causing that inflammation inside. And that's why we say with dental procedures, you have to have antibiotics because any bacteria from your mouth can seed that implant space.
1: I did read something once that antibiotics can also cause capsular contracture. Is that a lie?
2: I've never heard that. <laughs>
1: Did I make that up? But it would help it because that's what you're that. trading. I don't know if I made this up then because I swear I read it somewhere on a Facebook group.
2: Oh, okay. The old reliable.
0: <laughs> Facebook group. Do you know
1: what? Ian was, what were we talking about the other day? I'm sorry to just jump off topic, but yeah. we were like, oh, the bank's having another interest that's rise. Right. And Ian was telling me that his bank has another interest rise. I'm like, well, no, I don't think that's right because TikTok told me there was no more interest rises. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, yeah, because TikTok, TikTok. is factual. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, like-
2: <laughs> yeah, she's like, who told you that? <laughs> it's like, my bank.
1: <laughs> well, TikTok told me otherwise. So I think <laughs> I'm right. Anyway, sorry, moving along. Bottoming out, why? Why does it happen? Can you prevent it? Is there anything you can do? Is it surgeon error? Is it patient error? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So also, again,
2: like, like everything, it's multifactorial. So, <laughs> so bottoming out essentially means your implant has dropped below the level of the incision. And the reasoning for that is because there's no, when the implant sits in that space, it's very easy to dissect between the muscle and the skin, and that's where it goes. So unless it's stitched down by the surgeon, so that's, you can call that the internal bra, or you can just call it a way of closing. You've got to close that space down so the implant has no place to go. Now, even if that is closed off, it can happen if people go back to the gym too early. So things haven't been allowed to heal. They're gonna flex that pec muscle. And when you squeeze on the implant with your pec, it's gonna go the path of least resistance, which is either down or out to the side.
1: And is that why people who are bodybuilders or exercise a lot, even if they wait that six weeks, are they at a higher risk of that happening?
2: Overall, yes. Because if they're constantly using that chest muscle, they are at higher risk. Although over time, once the capsule's formed, that's going to do its job of holding things mm-hmm. in pretty well. The other way that bottoming out can happen is actually through planning. So if you have a very short distance between your nipple and your fold, your crease, and you want to put a big implant in, sometimes the incision's made below your natural crease. And so when that's there, you already have a predisposition to it dropping down. Right. So you're kind of fighting against the anatomy there.
0: And I had another question. We get this a lot, but do you have to change your implants every 10 years?
2: So nowadays, the generally accepted rule is that you don't have to. So the 10-year thing happened with the older generation of implants. There used to be a lot of silicon gel bleed through the shell. They were very thin shells, and that gel bleed caused a lot of irritation, which would lead to capsular contracture after about 10 years. And that's why that was the recommendation. Nowadays, with the different types of implants, There's less gel bleed, there's less likelihood of that capsular contracture because of it, and so you don't have to change them. My advice for people is if you want to change the size or if you have some complication or something, for some reason, then you can change them, but I wouldn't say every 10 years you have to do it.
1: But I think a common misconception touching on that is that people think that they can go 10, 20 years when a lot of the times, like if you're losing weight, gaining weight, if you have babies, like there's so many things that contribute Mm. to you actually needing to have your implants replaced sooner. It's not like you're going to get 10 years out of your implants. It could only be a couple years. And I think people need to be aware of that. Mm.
2: Well, that's right. And again, we've got to come back to thinking about the breast and the implant as two separate structures. And I've had patients who have had their implants in for 20 plus years and they were fine. They wanted a different size, perhaps. And so that's why we did the surgery. But but the breasts do change, and they change on top of the implants. So, again, I've had patients who I've operated on, and maybe three or four years later, they've had a couple babies. Their breasts have changed. The implants are still in the same place. And so in those cases, all we have to do is do a lift over top.
1: Yeah. And, like, we don't even have babies or, any, or implants or anything like that. But I know, like, my boobs do change, yeah. you know, depending... Okay of hormones yeah. or you know weight gain and things like that and I you know I've got a little bit more sag so I think people need to be a little bit more realistic with their expectations and as you age you probably will get a bit of a saggy breast and you probably will need an additional lift
2: yeah we're all still aging I mean that's not going to stop but <sighs> well, can it <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day maybe one,
1: maybe day. one <laughs> day we can freeze ourselves <laughs>
0: okay. well let's wrap up this episode with doing our new little what's it called
1: i don't know like a little segment we have like hot or not broke or bougie
2: hit it or quit it hit it
1: or quit it just depending on the episode we're gonna choose one of the three we may have stolen this idea from (laughs) someone else we're not actually quite sure but if we did we're sorry
0: but we're going to do the. Is it broke or bougie today? Let's do broke or bougie. Okay, perfect. Do we know what we're going to focus on? I hope so. I've got my
1: products lined up.
2: I have no idea what's coming right now. I just... what,
1: what should we pause and <laughs> discuss what our broken bougie yeah, yeah. Well, you <laughs> go first because you yeah, know you what first. yours is. Okay. My broke product is the Mecca Max Pout Pencil in plush. I feel like I've convinced everyone in our clinic to get this. Did you buy this? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I think Sam did as well. It is like your lip color, but better. Chef's Kiss looks great. Only $16. So get on it. And then my bougie product. It's the Is Clinical Bougie Balm. I think it's called the Youth Intensive Cream. It's maybe $400 to $600. I loved it. And then I found out it wasn't for my skin type. So I actually re gifted it to Ian because it's for a more mature skin type. And I, I was scared of breaking out. So, but that is my Bougie product that I was loving. And oh. now
0: that you have. So enjoy it. Okay. Well, mine is, and you're going to hate it, but
1: oh, <laughs> I'm <my> going to, <laughs> I swear to God, if it's the All Cosmetics cleansing
0: balm. <laughs> so I can smell it already. <laughs> my broke is a broke product. Bro- Broke. Broke know. product is the O Cosmetics Nourishing Cleansing Balm. We have a bit of controversy in the clinic because I love it. Meg loves it too. And Karen she doesn't mind it. the smell. Every single Did, po- No, I don't think Karen liked no, it. No, she does love she it. Does? Okay. Yeah. Well, everyone hates the smell because I don't know, Kayla said it smelled like old Play-Doh old product or something, like, like off brand product.
1: product, old Play-Doh. I can walk into the room if and someone's been it. using it and I honestly feel like I'm gagging. <laughs> I'm like, oh, can't be in here. Yeah. I went to film a TikTok or an Instagram video and I was like, no, nah, i got to go.
0: Yeah, I remember that. You walked into the room and straight back out. Yeah, I was like, but so I yeah. love it. I don't know. I think it smells really fresh, a bit coconutty and it works really well to take the makeup off. I can't remember how much it was.
1: I think this is like a semi-broke product depending mm-hmm. on what budget you have I think asked. it was like I forty.
0: Think- 49 I think like, for a cleansing balm though yeah that's a good a really, cleansing balm it's really nice I agree and it lasts forever and I was going to compare it to the number four pre-cleanse balm as a cleans- shit. yeah <laughs> that one is probably like if I had to do one cleansing balm for my whole life and I didn't have to spend the money I would get that one because it's so good but yeah but if you're that, broke that my then O the yeah. cosmetics one yeah
1: <laughs> what's your bougie my-
0: product the
1: number four. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, all right. Perfect. I was yeah. just comparing. Sorry. So you've got, a. Bro- oh, that's a pretty good idea. Like doing a broken bruise. You mm. have the same product. Mm. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Ian.
2: It's tough because I'm not as sophisticated a product user as you guys.
1: I bet you don't have any broken your product. Right? <laughs> it's all going to be bougie. Well, you're going to have to start shopping at Kmart if you want to be a part of this podcast. Just,
2: <laughs> I guess the most, the brokest or the most broke product that I have is my O Cosmetics Retinol.
1: And it's $107 or something. Is like it that.
2: really? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so Going forward, we're gonna have to send you some yeah. broke products cool. that we like. Right.
2: Sounds good. But no, I like it. I really like it as a product. So I've used other retinols that I find really harsh, but I think the oak is really good. Mm. My bougie product is the bee venom
1: cream. Gold face mask.
2: Moisturizer mask. mask. Yeah. yeah. The gold one, which the venom only comes from the queen bees.
1: I like that you know that.
2: Well, we did a podcast on it.
1: <laughs> Taking it in, like it. And I'm pretty sure there's only like how many sold per so, year? So they
2: do 500 bottles a year.
1: Yeah. yeah. And what wow. do you like about it?
2: I just like the texture of it and I like the smell. I mm. can't even, You, if you smelled it, you'd probably, you smelled the, when you had the facial. I
1: fell asleep during that facial. Oh, right. I don't remember anything. It was so good.
2: But yeah, it smells a little bit clinical. Yeah. Just a little bit, you know, just, just little, enough just mm. to make you think that like fresh, it's doing yeah, something. Mm, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: And, and have yeah. you love notice that. an improvement in your skin.
2: Well, I have, but I've been doing so many things. I've changed my whole routine, so it's I don't know.
0: Multifactorial. Oh, you. <laughs> Podcast. So, yeah. yeah. Multifactorial. <laughs> That's just season three. Is just motto. <laughs> multifactorial. Thank uh, you.
1: Love it. That was good. Should we wrap it up?
2: Let's wrap it Let's up. Let's do it. Let's
1: wrap it up. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast on all things Breast Basics.
2: I think it was a good way to lead off the season. Now that there's three of us, each of us is going to talk about something that's specific to to our own field. So it's a big topic. We're going to do a lot more videos on breast. So looking forward to discussing with you guys, discussing with the audience and just sharing our knowledge.
1: All things boobies.
0: Well, thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a lot too. Me too. But anyway, make sure to follow us on our socials. All the information will be in the description. And make sure to leave us a review as well. Only five stars. And we will see you in our next podcast. Bye. Bye.